Well, good evening, listeners. Um, I hope you're enjoying the uh, Indigenous Peoples Day, or to some of you, it is Columbus Day. Uh, anyway, my guest this afternoon is Naomi Hughes, and uh, after I we play my intro music, we'll get the show started. <laughs> Good evening, Naomi. I don't know what time it is there. It's uh, it's only two, about a little after two o'clock here. Um, you're in a different time zone, so good afternoon or good evening to you. Oh, kind of in between. Uh, uh, good yeah. afternoon ish. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, for our East Coast listeners, um, this is five o'clock. So some of them, who knows? Maybe people are listening to us on the way home from work. So. Um, one of the things you said um, that I read on the back of your book is that you live in the Midwest and you love where you live except for all the tornadoes that hit in the spring. And, um, mm. you know, that's, that's one of the, the – that's, that's sort of a big deal in the Midwest. In fact, they actually had a tornado in New York last week, which is unusual, especially for October. Um, wow, Yeah. Yeah, and it's actually really hot back there. I have a lot of friends back in Ohio where I used to live, and um, it's really, it's like, it's kind of creepy hot because it's in the 50s here. I'm in Seattle. so. But anyway, we're not here to talk about the weather. We're here to talk about your new novel called After Image. And um, <laughs> I would, you know, when I was reading this, I, it reminded me of a couple of others, and I, you know, I thought of a log line that, be like, well, it's If I Stay meets the Blade Runner. So, because it kind of has elements of both. So, why don't you give me like the elevator that. pitch? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, people say, well, what, what, what can you compare it to? And you've got two titles to compare that to. Um, but give and us, that's give so me hard. a <laughs> It is, I know. You know, you write a 300 page book, and people say, well, what's it about? And you can't say about 300 <laughs> I don't know. pages. You have to say, something specific so Mm -hmm. so anyway uh give us the elevator pitch of after image (laughs) sure so um so basically it's about a girl who is uh struggling with panic disorder throughout the book um which i also have and um one of her triggers is that she has a really hard time going onto the army base where her mother works so in the course of her therapy, she's trying to, um, to go onto the base to pick up her mother after an overnight shift, and she's having a really tough time managing it. And while that's happening, um, there is this massive explosion that destroys like half of the base, including her mother. Um, and she's uh, Cameron, my main character, is the only survivor. So when she wakes up, um, she is the only person who can see this transparent boy in a lab coat. So she's trying to figure out what he is and why she somehow managed to survive this massive explosion. And then um, some of the uh, army officials accused her mother of being the one who set the explosion in the first place. 
so she's also trying to prove her mother's innocence. Um, and then things kind of escalate from there, and there's some uh, tiny-wimey, as Doctor Who would say, uh, elements mm-hmm. that come in about halfway through. <laughs> yeah, and this one is one of those books that sort of crosses genres. Um, I've read mm-hmm. some reviews where some people have said, oh, they didn't like that it went into science fiction, and there are others that said, oh, they loved it, the transition from kind of appearing to be a thriller in the beginning, and it actually went into a science fiction realm. So, and that's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that it, and I guess it just depends. I mean, there's actually been a lot of books lately that have, that do kind of cross genres. So where on the shelf would you say? Would you say that this is a, a thriller or sci-fi, or would you just put it in as young adult? You know, it's, uh, it'd be kind of hard to categorize. I usually call it a, um, a young adult sci-fi um, thriller because okay. um, I feel like, I feel like a, lot of it, a lot of the reader experience depends on expectations. And like you, you mentioned some of those um, negative reviews because, uh, and I think a lot of that was because those people were surprised. Like they weren't expecting mm-hmm. the science fiction element. They were expecting more dystopian, which it's not. Um, so yeah, right. I, would, I would probably shelf it in the science fiction just so that people who like science fiction can easily find it. And people mm-hmm. who might not be super into science fiction um, won't be disappointed by it, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I didn't find that it was inaccessibly science fiction-y, uh, you know, so I don't understand why people <laughs> would be would object to it. I mean, I think you did a nice job of segueing into the science fiction elements. Um, you know, there's kind of tension all the way throughout, so, you know, and a lot of science fiction yeah, is that- very tense. That um, light science fiction element actually, um, uh, apparently, the uh, the reps at Macmillan tell me that 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 was one of their favorite elements of the book is that it had light science fiction, but that it was still accessible to people who aren't um, into sure, science, fiction. science fiction. Yeah, because yeah, I'm often put off by sci-fi because of the the worlds are just too inaccessible. But your world was grounded in a real. It felt like it was grounded more in a real place. So. I didn't. I didn't find the science fiction a problem. Um, but now you mentioned panic disorder, and I don't know if you're familiar. John Green is, was very open about that in his latest book, Turtles All the Way Down. And uh, oh yeah, you know. That, he, so have you read his book? Um, I I have read um, several of his books. I started to mm-hmm. read Turtles All the Way Down, but I actually have OCD as well as panic disorder myself, so it got a little too triggery for me to finish. Mm, interesting. Yeah. I imagine if a book like that would be hard to write because you're writing something that it's true in that aspect that you've, you know, the author has gone through a similar experience. So Yeah, definitely. The, I'm actually working on a new project right now um, that does feature a main character who has OCD. Um, and it's not it's not the same specific subtype as mine is, which makes it a little bit easier to write about, and also kind of cathartic. It's it's kind of really nice to get everything out there and hopefully help. Uh, you know, um, hopefully it will help people who have OCD to be able to see themselves um, in mm-hmm. books or and especially in genre fiction, which you don't see a whole lot more now, but uh, not a whole yeah. lot in genre fiction. And then people who don't have OCD or panic disorder in After Images case, we'll hopefully be able to have a little bit more understanding of kind of what it's like. 
Right. And now uh, there's probably, I think there are different treatments for OCD and panic disorders. So, you know, I guess are there, there are medications and behavioral modification therapies that help you. I mean, you're obviously a fully, you know, a highly functional human being. So you, you don't <laughs> let those things run your life. So um, how are you coping? How are you, how are you able to cope with those? Um, well, I went through some um, really wonderfully effective therapy called um, exposure and response prevention therapy for OCD specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, it just walks you through facing your fears and accepting uncertainty instead of trying to use all these compulsions to attempt to gain complete certainty, which is impossible. Um, and OCD people aren't generally good with uncertainty. So that was a key element of it. Um, and uh, it, that helped me a lot. It's still hard sometimes. It's still a thing. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of think of it as everybody has a thing when they're feeling really stressed out for, you know, it could be for a specific reason or just maybe you're having an anxious day. And on those days, the, the triggers for the OCD are a little bit higher sensitivity than they would be otherwise. But I am every day thankful for the wonderful therapists that I've been to. Um, I've not had to take medication uh, myself, but I do know many people have had success with that as well. So not knocking that at all. Um, but, yes, mm-hmm. definitely very pro-therapy. I would, I would love to see that um, come, become more of a mindset and less of a stigmatism. Now, in what ways does writing help you help with your OCD? I'm sorry. I just realized I said stigmatism, not, uh, stigma, less of a stigma. Vision problem. Right, that's a thing in your eye. <laughs> I'm sorry. Say, repeat, say your question one more time. Well, I was um, asking about how how writing helps helps you uh, with your OCD. Yeah, uh, it helps me uh, process things, and um, like, I, like I mentioned earlier, it's, it's kind of cathartic in a way to, uh, to kind of, it's kind of a way of talking to myself about the things that I'm afraid of, and, as well as talking to my readers eventually, but before, before I talk to my readers through my story, I'm always my first audience, so I always write for myself, for the things I love, and the things I want to say, and for exploring the things that are meaningful to me and, and trying to figure out why they are meaningful to me. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, I mean, I, I, I wasn't in the right place to write a book with an OCD main character a few years ago because that was when I was just really recently diagnosed and it was still too fresh and scary for me to do. Um, but mm-hmm. now that I've, I've had some time to process and research, I do lots of research. I'm a Ravenclaw. That's what we do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um I'm, I feel like I'm in a better position to talk to myself about these things and talk to readers eventually about them. So you mentioned uh, Ravenclaw, so I'm assuming that you're, you're a Potterhead, you know, that you're very uh, I am. You're influenced <laughs> a little bit by Harry Potter. And it's interesting because, you know, I have to credit J.K. Rowling with bringing, I mean, gener- you know, really a couple of generations now ever since these books came out of kids who – we're not normally readers before, um, but, mm-hmm. you know, boys and girls are reading them. And adults, I've loved the first, you know, I, I've read the first and the fourth. Um, I'm not usually one to read series because I, it, 
it, I mean, what were there eight books in that series? That's a lot of time. Those are really big. They're thick books. But I think <laughs> that they're, you know, the, the whole world that she built is delightful. And it, even though it is, it's, I guess you would call it a fantasy, but it felt like you could really step into this reality. There were enough grounding elements. And there's enough, um, well, I think there's a lot in there that kids with all different backgrounds connect to, you know, kids who have been abused, uh, kids who have been bullied, and uh, kids who have who stand out in a lot of ways uh, connect to that. And, of course, like you mentioned with the, the different groups, um, you know, a lot of us would fit into the different type of groups. I would probably be a Ravenclaw because I, I got to mm-hmm. know all the facts. So. So in what ways do you think that uh, J.K. Rowling's books influenced you? Yeah, um, well, I've always loved Harry Potter ever since. I think the first one I read was um, probably around junior high. Um, And Mm -hmm. I was actually raised in a fairly strict um, religious upbringing. So I wasn't technically allowed to read the Harry Potter books. Um, But I think I managed to sneak through about five of them. (laughs) And then, of course, the... after I grew up and everything, I, I watched the uh, the movies and um, I I, ha- I love the original series. Um, it certainly has quite a lot of merits, but I have to say I also love the um, the new ones with Newt uh, Scamander. Um, those new movies, I can't place the name, but I, I just love him. He's such a wonderful character. Mm-hmm. Well, that's yeah, that's, and it's interesting that you know a lot of my former students were kind of forbidden to read it so of course they would you know they would mm-hmm. get copies from the school library and read it at school and I think right. that's part of the appeal was the fact that it was often I mean it's probably still on the banned books list um, so of course if your book is banned that's going to make more kids want to read it because they want to know why it's banned so, sure you know uh, now you said that in on your website and um, and be- while we were talking uh, before the show, that you've lived in a lot of places. You've lived all over the U.S. So what are some places that you lived? Yeah, well, I was actually born in uh, up at East in New Hampshire, um, which I don't remember a whole lot because I, I only lived there for the first few years of my life, I think. Um, but then my family moved to, like, New York and Pennsylvania, uh, Texas, a couple places in the Midwest, and like various cities in all of those states. So, um, mm-hmm. I'm I'm sometimes told that uh, that my accent is hard to place. So that is probably why <laughs> I'm from everywhere. Oh, probably. Yeah, you don't really have a. I guess you'd say a regional accent. Yeah. Probably. You know, you've you've been influenced by all the places you've lived. I mean, you don't have an East Coast accent. Um, I guess mm-hmm. you would say it's just a it's a it's a Midwest accent, which is almost not an accent, right? Um, very general. Yeah, yeah, it's very yeah, it's very uh, kind of hard to place. Um, but now, now was your was your father like was he military, or he just decided to take jobs around the country? Yeah, my parents were just nomads. They still kind of are, um, in the sense they just they live somewhere for a few years and then they just kind of get itchy and want to get up and go somewhere else. Which I I can understand. I love to travel too. 
my husband's all about mm-hmm. putting roots down. So we're constantly trying to figure out uh, where we're going to live and if we're going to stay somewhere or not. So mm-hmm. <laughs> we've, we've settled so into you, uh, taking lots of vacations. <laughs> traveled a lot on your own, even though you're, you've lived in the same state for a while. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've been in the same area now for about or ten or ten or twelve years. Um, but yeah, I've I've just been able, like the last few years, I've finally been able to financially to travel a little bit more. So, um, like I went um, with uh, my brother to, I mean, this is still in the U.S., but we went to L.A. to see. Hamilton, uh, which was amazing, mm. and uh, yeah, and go to the Universal Studios down there, which was also amazing, um, and then, you know, we do, like, uh, we have a daughter, so we've done, like, Disney Cruise, which was also highly recommended and wonderful. Um, I've got to do a little bit of travel abroad to, uh, like, Germany and Austria uh, and Hungary um, and a little bit in Amsterdam. Um, which has some really beautiful museums. So uh, next on my list is uh, Canada and Alaska. I would really love to go up there. Mm. Yeah, there um, Canada. There are parts of Canada that are just postcard beautiful. And, mm-hmm. uh, and the, I don't know something about their cities. Their cities are so much cleaner than ours. I don't know why, but it, it does seem that don't way. Seem, they don't seem to be as grungy as our cities. But I don't know what, you know, maybe they're just cleaner people. I don't know. Germany is most interesting? It is very clean. Yeah. What's <laughs> the most interesting city or place you've been to in all your travels? Ooh. Hmm. I, I would probably have to say that uh, that trip that, that I took abroad in, uh, in college to uh, Germany and Austria and the Czech Republic because it was the first time I, I mean, I mean, I, I'd grown up all over the United States, but in relatively small towns, and uh, mm-hmm. I didn't really get a very strong sense of place from them. Um, so when I traveled abroad for the very first time, and it was by myself with just like some of my college classmates on a on an educational tour, um, mm-hmm. it was pretty intense, um, but in a good way. It it opened my eyes to a lot of different viewpoints. Um, like I, I, we we visited uh, Dachau, which is a which was a concentration camp, mm. and I I will never forget that. Um, and I know that one day when my daughter is old enough, I want to take her for that sort of experience also, to see all the beautiful sights and all of the culture, but also some of the things that we need to remember. And kind of uh, it gave me a a viewpoint on some things that you can't really get um, just from textbooks. Right. And do you ever think you would use any of of what you've seen or know from having traveled a lot in any of the any of your future characters? No, I'm not sure. Um, my characters are such a uh, a mishmash of just um, of just random things. They kind of uh, snowball a little bit, so I never really know what's going to go into my characters. But I am a huge advocate of. Um, living an adventurous life because it will help you find so many different emotions and and different ways to find your way into a character that you won't get just from sitting at your desk all day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like well, like because you when you were a kid, 
you were often probably the new kid at school. So that would be mm-hmm. a, an interesting situation to explore if you're uh, for writing writing a book for kids because being the new kid is, you know, it is kind of a, it's depressing and uh, for at least initially because you walk into this building and you don't know anybody. You know, if you have a sibling, you, at least you know that person. But, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, uh, I actually have a, I have a twin brother, so I did have that at least. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, it's uh, definitely not a situation that allows you to make many friends. Like I just in a, uh, like about a year and a half ago, I found my very first best friend ever, <laughs> which hmm. is amazing as an adult um, because she's just magnificent. It's best friend. I didn't realize what I was missing before. So it was kind of sad yeah. that I didn't have that when I was younger too. Right. Yeah, and that's important in your development that, you know, you have somebody who is a best friend for a while. And uh, yeah. I don't think I had one until I was in seventh grade. And uh, mm-hmm. we were, well, we were living overseas. So all the, all the kids, that was the interesting thing, is all of the kids in my class, my classes there, they all knew what it was like to be the new kid because nobody was from there. So mm-hmm. the living overseas is a whole unique thing but often when you move when you move to small towns in the United States there aren't that many new kids you know that when you do come in you're that stranger who comes to town so all eyes are on you but there's also a little bit of you know they've already formed their groups you're always a little little bit on the outside (laughs) looking in until you go to college and when there again everybody is the new kid so in college, mm-hmm. you can form yep, exactly. friendships because you know what it's like to be the new kid. So, so having lived in a lot of places, you know, East Coast and Upper Midwest, what made you choose where you are now? Is it, you know, was it the topography, the climate, the people? Yeah, well, the main reason uh, is because my husband's family is all from here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um you know, if it wasn't for that, I would probably pick up and, like, move to Colorado, but, like, tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's beautiful there. It's, I, love, I love the place where I live, and I, I've actually been surprised in a lot of ways um, by how genuine the people are here. Um, but, you know, I, I would love to live somewhere with some beautiful mountains and, like, a, a healthier lifestyle where you can go whitewater rafting and uh hiking in this beautiful environment and yeah like i said i i always uh i always want to go somewhere no matter where i land mm-hmm. be. <laughs> yeah that's probably kind of kind of etched into your dna from having been a mobile type of kid yeah wanderlust yeah. <laughs> yeah now do you have a, a writers group that you or critique partners that you meet up with uh, I have uh, I have a few critique partners. I don't have anybody that I meet up with in real life. Um, but uh, Casey Lyle is uh, is one of my critique partners. Um, I actually mentored her in Pitch Wars, and she was just so amazing. I was like, please let's hang out after the contest, and and that was about four years ago now. So um, mm-hmm. she's lovely. And then Chelsea Babowski, um, she wrote uh, The Wood, which is this fantastic uh, young adult fiction novel. 
and I think she's she's got a few more things coming too. Um, and then I have a, a few other wonderful critique partners who aren't yet uh, published, um, mm-hmm. and I'm very much looking forward to to their books when they come out. Yeah, it's important to have to find people who are at the same probably at the same level, so that they can give you mm-hmm. the same the level of criticism that you need. Because if you're trying to critique with a newbie, they don't they may not be able to give you the right criticism. So if you work yeah, with definitely. people who, and <clears throat> yeah, I'm I'm also a uh, I work full time as an editor. Um, and I'm I'm well full time as an editor and a writer, um, so mm-hmm. I've I've been able to do less critique partnering, um, both giving and receiving critiques, uh, because I don't feel like it's fair to continue to constantly ask mm-hmm. critiques when I don't have time to give them all the time, um, because I'm I'm frequently very busy with with editing and with my own writing projects, and then I also do some ghost writing, so um, a lot of the time I'll just use like one critique partner for a project before I send it on to my editor. Um, but I mm-hmm. definitely think that even beyond critiquing, just those relationships are so important, that support and um, like having somebody to whine to when publishing is taking too long, <laughs> which it always does. Yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah. so important. You know, it's, uh, you know, it takes a lot. Everything in the publishing business tends to be slow. So, mm. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, we're almost out of time, uh, but I I have to say I've really enjoyed talking with you. And I like to end my conversations with uh, asking my authors, uh, what's your your best writing advice that you'll give to anybody out there who is looking to want to publish a book? Oh, there was actually this um, this quote by Catherine uh, Valenti. I believe that's how you pronounce her name. Um, That got me through a lot. Um, especially when I was writing After Image and the book that I wrote before that, which is not yet published, um, because those took me like four years of writing and rewriting and revising and revising again. And, and uh, it just, it, when it got to be really hard, I would look back at this quote and it would really help me. Um, and the quote was, um, if I'm paraphrasing here, but it said, if you are rejected, don't get mad. Instead, become more awesome and keep writing things that are better and better until we until people have to accept you because they're blown away by the story that you've written. Oh, and that's, you know, and that's the truth. I kind of think of rejection as a bit of a gift because hmm. um, especially if it's specific rejection. If somebody just says no mm-hmm. and they don't tell you why, that's not a big help. Um, but if somebody right. gives you specific reasons why, that gives you room to improve. So, yes, definitely. Yeah. I've I've been through many many rejections, and that it always helps oh, yeah. me to remember, make it productive, to right. use it when you well, can. One is not, not, a, not one is not one is not a true writer unless one has had rejection. <laughs> yes, that is yeah. true. Well, Naomi, I've really enjoyed talking to you, and I wish you the best of luck on After Image. I believe it comes. It's not quite out yet. It comes out. Um, November. Oh, actually, it, it came out. Uh, oh, it, it is. Out, okay, you're, um, yeah, September right. 18th. It came out in September. <laughs> so it is available yes. now in books bookstores everywhere. Yes, awesome. and it's in Barnes and Nobles, and uh, hopefully many independent bookstores as well. Yeah, awesome. Well, 
All right. Well, I wish you the best of luck and have a really good evening. And um, we may run into each other someday at a conference. Yeah, I hope so. Thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely to talk with you. Yeah, you're welcome. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, we've been listening to Naomi Hughes talk about her new novel, After Image. It's Young Adults, and as she said, it's available at Barnes & Noble. It's from Page Street Publishing. And um, I'm taking a week off. The next week I'll be getting knee surgery. So um, my next guest coming up on the 22nd is Kevin Emerson, and we'll be talking about his latest novel called Any Second. And um, until then, this has been the Young Adult Cafe. It's a copyrighted podcast solely owned by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. And I am Laura Moe, and I will see you in a couple of weeks.